Welcome to Conversations at Mount Vernon's Washington Library. The Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington at Mount Vernon serves as the premier resource for all who are interested in the study of George Washington and the revolutionary and founding eras. Every year, the library hosts numerous scholars who share our dedication to generate and disseminate new knowledge about all things Washington. The library's founding director, Dr. Douglas Bradburn, has the opportunity to sit down with these scholars to explore their research, and we are so excited to share those conversations with you. Today's guest is Ricardo Herrera. He is an associate professor of military history, specializing in 18th and 19th century American military history. He currently teaches at the School of Advanced Military Studies, U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. He is discussing his latest book, For Liberty and the Republic, The American Citizen as Soldier, 1775 to 1861, where you'll learn more about the modern technique of using battlefields as classrooms and how the identities of citizen and soldier were closely intertwined in the 18th and 19th centuries. And now, Mr. Herrera and Dr. Bradburn. All right, well, welcome. This is Doug Bradburn, the founding director of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington at Mount Vernon, the presidential library for George Washington. And I'm delighted to have in my office right now, Rick Herrera. Uh, he's an associate professor of history at the, war, at the School of the Advanced Military Studies at the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. Rick, welcome. Thanks, Doug. It's great to be here. I've enjoyed all the time. Now, Rick and I first met back at an Omohundro conference. It was in Halifax. Hal yeah, Halifax, Nova Scotia. It was in 2013, I yep. believe. I believe so. And it was very serendipitous for me. I had just begun as the director at the, at the Washington Library here at Mount Vernon. And, uh, and Rick is an extraordinary expert in American military history uh, and in thinking about developing our Leadership Institute here, we've been putting together some staff rides uh, at places like Yorktown and Rick has done staff rides all over the country, all over the world even. Yeah, I've, I've got in my job uh, with the Army before I went to uh, SAMS, School of Advanced Military Studies. I was at the Combat Studies Institute, where I was on the staff ride team, and I led and developed staff rides for a living. So, for hmm. those, you know, who were they for? Who were they for? Uh, primarily military audiences. Yeah. However, I also did them for USAID, so the uh, U.S. Amer uh, Institute of uh, uh, International Development, yeah. uh, part of the State Department. Also, did them for. Um, uh, foreign armies, including the British Army. So they're a well-known training tool in military circles. Mm -hmm. uh, they're not particularly well-known amongst academic historians, I have to admit, as a, an ignoramus myself who wasn't in the military uh, coming into this world. And certainly, yes, I'd toured battlefields, but the whole notion of the staff ride, talk a little bit about what that, what, what is that as a genre of edu of pedagogy? Sure. What is a staff ride? Yeah, uh, uh, yeah a, a, a staff ride is essentially a, a focused study of a battle or a campaign that uses the battlefield as a classroom, but mm -hmm. also as a primary source document. Wow, so as a text? Yes, absolutely. Wonderful. So we're reading terrain, yeah. and in doing so, as we interpret it, 
we, and I'm, and I'm talking about the instructors, but more importantly, the students. Mm. The students are the focus of this thing. Mm. We interpret the terrain through the lenses as best we can of the decisions of the of the leaders who yeah. were there, yeah. and these are often these are at strategic, operational, and tactical level yeah. uh, leadership, and so we try and understand how the terrain affected their decision making. We try and look at what they knew at the time of this particular episode in the larger engagement, the larger campaign, you name it, and so what we try and do is to cause the students to think about decision making, to think about leadership, to think about how one sizes up a situation mm. based upon imperfect knowledge and then reacts or conversely doesn't react. It's an interesting uh, experience uh, to go on one of these. I've done some now and uh, it, it's unusual for someone who's trained as an academic historian to be so uh, connected to kind of the immediate or the applica the applicability of the past. Mm -hmm. I mean, historians tend to hold the past at an arm's length and say, the past is uh, a foreign country. Right. Uh, it's a it's a different world. But yet these uh, examples, like public history, generally, like we do here at Mount Vernon and in our own leadership institute, we we're trying to connect people to lessons that they can really uh, incorporate into their own professional development. Yeah, and what we're doing, and you know, and, and my, my background is you know is very much traditional academic. I mm -hmm. taught uh, at a couple of small schools, Texas Lutheran University, uh, Mountain Union College. Uh, when I was, I've been a department chair and a program head. Mm. But coming back, condolences. To <laughs> yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> but it was, you know, what it was fun generally. Yeah. But uh, coming back to the army as a civilian. What I've done is is really enter a world that's almost that kind of straddles the world of public history, yeah. but also traditional academic history. So we're doing what we term applied history. Mm. It's not so much about lessons learned, but teaching our students, and particularly the ones that I get to teach at mm. Sam's, about how to think and how past leaders, past commanders, yeah. have employed um, the operational art. Well, I, I, I like the way you put that because it isn't so much that, you know, oh, I'm, le I'm learning specific technical things that I can use in the field. It's really about perspective. Absolutely. In the same way that the liberal art of history is about perspective and it's about uh, understanding that uh, human beings throughout time have, have shared, you know, uh, struggles, problems. Uh, and that we need to learn those, particularly in the the genre of effort that we're involved in, not to find those specific recipes to you know to cook up. Right. It, yeah. It's it's about um, teaching students to understand how the past resonates. Mm. That it mm. it doesn't repeat itself, but there are certain patterns that it rhymes a lot. You know, I'm not the first one to say any of those, but I think many historians would agree with that. Mm. And so to understand that they are not the first ones to do whatever it is that they've been doing. Yeah. Oftentimes, and I'm sure you encountered this uh, when, you were, when you were teaching uh, in, in, in traditional academe, oftentimes they come in with this view that, hey, we are so incredibly unique, it's, yeah. this, it's this yeah. hubris the, and arrogance yeah. of, of the present. The arrogance of the present, incredible. Yeah. And so, and so we're, we're, in part, what we're aiming at, where, where I am, and through staff rides, but yeah. also 
the courses the courses that I get to teach is to help engender even a sense of humility yeah and well, understanding that's... and deeper thought Humility can bring a certain confidence. As it, it sounds, uh, it sounds counterintuitive because, mm-hmm. but there's a confidence. I mean, is the opposite of arrogance in this sense that uh, humility to recognize that you don't necessarily know the best way to do things, but you're confident that you have the right training to and and experience and perspective to draw upon past lessons to try to make. A good choice. Yeah, it, it training, experience, but also education. Yeah, you know, we're, we're about teaching our our, our students to think and to grasp and to consider bigger, broader questions, well beyond where they are, but also to challenge the uh, concepts that are put before them by their superior officers. Mm-hmm. We um, jokingly say that at Sam's, we're educating future insurgents within the army. Mm. We want people to think outside the box. We want people to challenge the system and to help make the army a better tool, a better servant of the U.S. Mm. All right, so what's your kind of hit list of staff rides, your favorite battlefields to, to, to try to achieve those goals that you love going back to and back to and you you just really feel like people are just surprised <laughs> that and you love teaching it? Oh boy! Well, at you know, at, at Sam's we do a, a Vicksburg staff ride every year. I think I've been to Vicksburg twenty-five times mm. over the past ten years. Mm. It's a good one. However, as an early Americanist, mm. I'm a, a big fan of of the the, the stuff that ha- that took place in the War of Independence. Mm. So uh, Yorktown, but the the Southern campaign that led up to it. So mm. uh, the the various British campaigns against Charleston. Mm. Uh, Calpins, Kings Mountain, Guilford Courthouse. You've done a Kings Mountain staff. I built it. Amazing. Yeah, it's it, it is fun. it is fun. It, you've got this small. Do you have to be a redneck to go on this? I mean, no. Yeah. Just just enjoy history. <laughs> just have fun. No, yeah, it's, uh, those ones. Um, yeah. uh, another f- uh, favorite of mine. Uh, it, it, you know, perhaps naturally, one that I built is uh, the Battle of San Pasqual. A small engagement. Fewer than probably 200 soldiers combined, mm. but this is one of these battles that leads to a much larger result. It takes place during the Mexican War in yeah. my home state of California, yeah. where the U.S. Army, quite frankly, gets its butt handed to it mm. by California Lancers, irregulars. Mm. Um, they defeat the, uh, the uh, so-called Army of the West, primarily soldiers of the uh, First Dragoons, mm-hmm. as well as... Um, a rather loudmouth and obnoxious lieutenant, um, Archibald um, Gillespie, <laughs> uh, and uh, some basically mountain men who are part of these so-called California Mounted Battalions. Great. But the Californios defeat them, uh, force them to retreat. They burn all of their tack, their saddles, everything. And this pains me to say as a former Army officer, they're rescued by a landing party comprised of <laughs> sailors and marines. Damn them! But they uh, march yeah. back to San Diego, reconstitute, and then Carney and uh, Richard Stockton, who's in command of the naval forces, sure. they will go on in a rather difficult relationship mm. and complete the American conquest of California, which will help result in the annexation of California mm-hmm. in, by 1848. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's fascinating. Well, so how do you deal with um, some of your students are obviously active duty military and uh, you know critiques of the notion that in the revolutionary era, 
Well, the, the scale is much different. The size of the armies are smaller. The, the situation you're talking about is a, a very small skirmish. Uh, what, what do you say to these uh, colonels of, uh, of brigades or something that might, that might see the, the revolutionary armies and say, well, I can't learn anything from that. That's 18th century weaponry. It's small scale. It's a completely different universe. No, good, good, good question. Um, the students that I teach are primarily majors, so they're mm. junior field grade officers. And above them, they've got lieutenant colonels and colonels. Uh, most of them have got about 10 years of service, multiple deployments. So they've seen extensive service overseas, primarily in Afghan, uh, or excuse me, Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, we get a handful of uh, sister services as well as foreign officers and some senior uh, government civilians. Mm -hmm. For the most part, they're still young enough to be accepting of the challenge, but they've also got enough experience to question what it is that mm. my peers and I are putting before them. Yeah, what's the which value of what you're, what yeah, you're exactly, and they yeah. should be doing that. Yeah. I mean, this, this is education at the taxpayer's dime, and I think they're really serving the taxpayers well. But my, the, the way that we tend to present it, and myself in particular, is that the scale is not that important. Rather, it's the concepts mm. and how commanders arrange their tactical actions in time, space, and purpose in order to achieve strategic goals. Mm. And this is something that I would argue has existed as long as society has organized mm. itself mm. to make war upon other so societies. So you could look at Alexander's army. Absolutely, learn, Alexander. Learn things. You, can, you could do that. You yeah. can look at uh, the Franco-Prussian War as we do. You can go back to the Thirty Years' War, the mm. English Civil War, any number of things. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, that's fantastic. Let's talk about you, though. You know, let's talk about your work. Um, I recently read a fantastic article that you wrote on uh, Light Horse Harry Lee and the Great Forage of 78. Yep, 1778. Uh, that, I think, is the current project you're working on. Right. Um, why don't we talk a little bit about that before we talk about your monograph, sure. Liberty and the Republic. Sure. So this Great Forage of 78, what is it and what are you trying to accomplish in your study of it? Well, let, let me go back to the beginning, being a historian. This actually started out as a, as a stand on a staff ride. Oh, really? I So, yeah. part of the Philadelphia campaign staff ride that I built, naturally, if you're doing Philadelphia, you've got to do Valley Forge. I mean, mm -hmm. that's the big emotional piece, yeah. if you will, that resonates with most Americans. All right, pause right there. Pause right there, because moron that I am, I think at some point I said, Valley Forge, I mean, it's just a bunch of guys sitting around yeah, starving. Exactly. It's what static. are you going to learn there? Exactly. You know? so, exactly. Yeah. So, what do you learn at Valley so, Forge? You know, it, it for, for us, for most Americans, Valley Forge is this Greek drama. Mm. It's essentially a, a tale of stoic, noble suffering by the Continental Army as the British Army enjoys Philadelphia, warm, snug, gambling, drinking, yeah. and whoring in good yeah. 18th century socially fashion. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, <clears throat> as I was looking at Valley Forge, you know, and one of the things that staff rides are predicated upon is movement. And Valley Forge is very much a stationary right. place. Yeah, yeah. So I recalled some works that I'd read, uh, including uh, Wayne Bodle's Valley Forge Winter, a superb work. On great, it. great piece. Absolutely. Yeah. And 
recalled the 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 uh, subsistence efforts that mm. the army had launched in order to feed itself. Yeah. So the stand, which is I conduct at Anthony Wayne's statue, um, talks about uh, this forage. And so as I continue, as I began working on the staff ride, building this stand, uh, the entire staff ride really, I figured, you know, there's an article in this, and one article became two articles, and now it's a book well, project. Well, that's often the, often the case, yeah. It, it's grown on its own. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. So, okay, so tell us a little bit about that. What's the, what's the question you're trying to grapple with? Good question about the question. Well, you can't have good history without good questions, and <laughs> I know you have one, so what is it? So, how, basically, how did the Continental Army subsist itself mm. in this operation, but also, how had it matured? Mm. And this operation is just one of many that takes place, but it was the largest muscle movement of the Continental Army between the Philadelphia Campaign and the Battle of Monmouth that took place in 1778. Conversely, it's also the largest muscle movement of the British Army bookended by both of those events, mm -hmm. the British Army's response to the Grand Forge of 1778. Mm. So um, what I see there is that the Continental Army, by this date, and this is not meant to um, uh, show any disrespect to uh, von Steuben, who certainly contributed mightily to the Continental Army's development. Well, he'll be happy to hear that. <laughs> and so will Paul Lockhart. <laughs> exactly. But the, the Continental Army had already matured to the point mm. where it, and by saying it, I'm really talking about Washington. And, and now we're talking. There yes. you go. Hey, here we are at Mount Vernon. That's One right. must talk about Washington. Absolutely. But Washington and his, his, his immediate military family, his staff, had learned how to plan at a very centralized mm. level, mm. but then trust to the subordinates, fellows like uh, Nathaniel Green, uh, Light Horse Harry Lee, mm. but also Anthony Wayne, yeah. to execute on a decentralized scale. And some junior, fairly junior oh, officers. Absolutely, I mean, yeah. you've got, you know, you've got um, Green, who's a major general, so two stars. Yeah. Wayne, who's a one star, as a brigadier general, right. and Lee, who is significantly junior to them as a captain. Mm. Mm -hmm. And Washington is working with all of these guys. He's also working with his commissariat, his, uh, his uh, basically his logistics mm -hmm. and subsistence officers. Yeah. And they're all tying very well together in this major effort to try and supply the Continental Army and carry it through the next few weeks. How different is it from the British and what they do to try to supply themselves? British were operating very much on the same principles. However, for the British Army in Philadelphia, it was actually drawing largely upon Great Britain for its supplies. Mm. Getting a lot of forage out of uh, Rhode Island, uh, bringing in some local supplies from, uh, from Philadelphia County, Bucks County, and Chester County. These are the three contested mm. counties between both Philadelphia and Valley Forge. Mm. But the, the British really um, are drawing the, the vast majority of their foodstuffs from the mother country. That's not to say that they don't rely upon the local economy, but most of their practices depended on, 
dependent on very long sea lines of communication. What do, so what do we learn about a study of the Grand Forge? I mean, why does it matter? So what? It, it matters, one, because it's a fairly large operation that is relatively unknown, unknown. for most Americans. Yeah, yeah. so, so there's, it, a, there's a whole recovery of the story. Absolutely. Wait, I mean, the, front, the, wait, that, that, that's the fun part. Yeah. Let, let's face it. it yeah. It's for historians uncovering something that's yeah. unknown or forgotten. But I think it, it, it matters because it really shows the maturation of the Continental Army. Mm. Here's, here's a force, uh, a really, um, well, in the beginning, a, a ragtag force, a motley force, if yeah. you will, yeah. sure. that by the second and third years of the, the War for Independence has become pretty sophisticated. Mm. And it can launch some pretty uh, impressive operations that are akin to something that you might see from a European army. Were they qualitatively on par with the British or the Prussians or the French? No. But well, there mean, was I, a, an incredible I, learning curve that they've surmounted. Well, that's interesting. I mean, the question you know, I've always kind of struggled with, and I guess in this regard, we know about the sort of professionalization narrative of the Continental Army. You, you go from basically farmers in New England to, mm -hmm. and other places to with short enlistments mm -hmm. to men with longer enlistments. Right. But I, I, it strikes me that what you are contributing as well is really a story about the officer corps and how that has changed substantially. It, you know, it's, it, the officer corps has changed, but in many ways, and I, and I take great comfort and pride in this, it's maintained many of the, of the same broader traditions this concept of Washington as a Republican, lowercase r, general. Yeah. Someone who shares in the trials and the sufferings of his troops. And that's a long-standing tradition within the U.S. Army, but also within the uh, U.S. Marine Corps, mm. that, uh, that soldiers and Marines come first. They come before officers. And you see some of these seeds being planted in the 18th century and nurtured by Washington's mm. leadership, by his example. So the Great Forge book, we all have to wait for, uh, but uh, you don't have to wait that long to go out and get a book by Rick Herrera because your first book, For Liberty and the Republic, The American Citizen is Soldier, 1775 to 1861, uh, is, a, is a history of, you know, it's a history of the men who served in the army. and. Uh, uh, why don't you talk a little bit about that study and what what it is about, where it came from, and why it exists? Sure. Um, the The book is a cultural and intellectual history of soldiering in the U.S. from the American Revolution through the end of the first year of the American Civil War. When I think about the character of the American Army in the Revolution, I think about Charlie Royster. Mm -hmm. Uh, who else should we be thinking about? Oh, John Shine. Of course, yeah. yeah. Uh, Don Higginbotham. Of course, yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, we, uh, today, so you're building on their work. You're I'm, critiquing I'm, I'm, it. You're I'm destroying I'm, it. I'm, I'm, I'm building upon their work. I'm also building upon uh, 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 Marcus Cunliffe's work, course, Soldiers yeah. and Civilians. Mm -hmm. And Cunliffe, I think, is doesn't get enough attention. Mm. His work, uh, I think, says far more than many of us recognize in, in that the character of the soldier and the citizen were so intertwined in the American experience, yeah. not just as soldiers, but 
really the constitution of the U.S. Army that um, you really can't study the Army, its nature, uh, its composition without understanding something about the people from which it was raised. Is the American Army unique? Every army is unique. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 in every army, every people's army reflects in some degree, greater or smaller, many of the ideas, uh, the ethos, the uh, ideology, the mythology yeah. of that particular people. I, I would say that the U.S. Army then and now reflects in some degree, you know, gr greater or larger, in some degree, much that Americans like to believe about themselves or liked to believe about themselves. So what does it mean to be a soldier in the American Army in 1780 versus, say, 1800? In those 20 years between in the midst of the Revolution to, I guess I guess it would be the Quasi-War Army sure, that I'm sure. imagining in my head. I, I just <laughs> picked a date and... I'm like, do we even have an army then? Yeah, anyway, yeah, yes, bar so. barely. You know, it, it, it you know, it, it's funny. What, what I guess I, maybe the, another way to think about the question is, what are the, what are the, you know, what are the major moments of change in your story of this long period? You know, where do we see shifts in the meaning of uh, of, of what it means to be a soldier? Yeah, that army? when when I began the study, yeah. that's what I'd expected. Mm. I thought that I would see shifts. That there'd be a distinctive change, say about 1815, you know, with the uh, the end of the War of 1812, which I think, like Frank Colliano, is very much the conclusion of the um, War of Independence. Americans stopped looking eastward over the Atlantic toward the mother country. They began turning their focus, their gaze westward. And yeah, I'm, I'm painting in broad swaths as one must, but when we when I looked at it when I looked at the evidence and, and the research took me to, to something like 40 plus archives mm. and libraries in over, in over 23 states uh, from the west coast to the east coast what kind of sources are you using primarily unpublished letters journals diaries yeah. and I, I, I purposely chose that because I believe uh, much as Earl Hess believes uh, in his work on the Civil War soldiers, that and and also uh, James McPherson, that the letters, the diaries, the journals, because they're less rehearsed, have a greater chance of truthful resonance mm. for what the soldiers were thinking. Mm. You know, you look at memoirs. Well, there's a more than a little bit of gilding the lily. Yeah, a lot of performance going on. Sure, I mean, we're a lot we're of all, us have talked to we're old taller, veterans. We're all taller. Mm. We're skinnier, we have more hair, we're better looking, and we're yes. braver. Yeah, all, all our grandparents have told stories that we know aren't true. Right, right. Yeah. And so these memoirs have that characteristic to them. So letter, contemporaneous letters and diaries of the times. Right, right. Um, there's got to be a dearth of sources in the Revolution compared to the Civil War. Uh, you know, I was really fortunate. I was able to find quite a few good ones. All right, so tell, mean, well, let's start with the revolution. So, so, all right, so what does it mean to be a soldier in the revolution? Well, and it's not just the revolution. I, as as yeah. I argue, this ranges up through That's, okay, this first year so, right. of the Civil War, right. these beliefs. Um, they, they think that, that, one, it's a demonstration of one's virtue, one's willingness to serve a greater good, something much larger than oneself. 
and that there's even a, a nobility in, in serving the greater good. Mm-hmm. So this, this, um, this self-abnegation, um, you know, this, this, which is really at the, the yes, which is really at the heart, which is part of the essence of republicanism. Well, so we, you know, we certainly associate with the officer corps this, this, mm-hmm. you know, this notion of playing the virtuous uh, Roman, the virtuous leader, the virtuous republican. Um, but you're seeing this through the soldiers. You, you see this in in the soldiers' letters as well. Yeah. You know, can, can I say that every guy? And I'm sure there were a few gals, but that every soldier believed exactly the same thing? No, because their letters don't exist. Mm. But based upon all of those that I did read, yeah. you know, and I and I think I've read thousands of letters from yeah. this book, yeah, yeah. that they all yeah. seem to resonate and they seem to be hitting upon many of the same things. I mean, things. it's easy to be cynical, but the fact is, you meet people who serve today, and you know, they have a very powerful sense of Absolutely. the role of their... Uh, I mean, they wouldn't put it in those terms because it's a little grand, but the, I mean, it's virtuous service. It's mm-hmm. their serve, they're sacrificing Absolutely. their own private pleasures mm-hmm. and families and and the ability to make money and many other things to serve the greater good. Sure, I mean, I, I, yeah. I had a I had a student. It's uh, a real thing. Yeah, I, I had a, yeah. I had a student uh, last year, a logistician, who's an army reservist, who's now on active duty. He had formerly been uh, fairly high up in uh, in uh, in Target. In fact, I've got another one just this year who's, who had also been form- fairly high up in the. Uh, with a with um oh gosh what is it uh, Home Depot yeah making good money oh. both of them um, either recalled to active duty or volunteered to go on active duty and they're sacrificing the comforts of home right. uh, of life with their families yes um, certainly the riches <laughs> compared to uh, military pay but they're gaining in order, in order to serve in order to serve their country right in order to serve something that's greater than themselves and so in this period from 75 to 61 from 1775 to 1861 they're using the language of virtue absolutely they're using the language of virtue they're also talking about some really old concepts of uh honor, fame, and glory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and for Americans, that really resonates. Not that it didn't resonate for Western Europeans or, or other peoples, but they're using these concepts, they're, they're fame, honor, and glory, particularly uh, important for Americans, because the American army did not award any decorations really until the Medal of Honor during the Civil War. Yeah. Washington had awarded toward the end of the uh, War of Independence the Purple Heart for valor. Yeah. But really, we have no decorations until the Civil War. We always say that valor, and I may get this completely wrong, that this Order of Merit mm-hmm. badge of Washington's, what was unique about it is that it applied, you could you could offer it to non-officers. Mm-hmm. It, it, yeah, which is which is a very Republican, yeah. lower R, and even Democratic, lower D, uh, demonstration of, 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 of military reward. Mm. Of recognition. What about manhood? How does that fit in? It, you know, in, in what many, does that mean? You know, it, it, when I when I first began this thing, I was thinking, well, hey, look, a guy is willing to shoulder a musket; he's a man. Well enough said. Well, it, it takes on much more than that. It's also, hey, how can I attain my manhood after being a soldier? How do I gain my position in society? Well, the military service offers soldiers uh, 
many things that they'll need as civilians. It may offer them land bounties. It may offer them cash bounties. Mm. It certainly may offer them recognition in the, within the community. All, all of these things con, uh, constitute many of the attributes of manhood in early America. So what, so what is it? This ability to be independent? This ability it's, to be it's, your it's, own it's, man? It's, I mean, it's, it's all of those to things. run it's, your household? All of those things. It's, yeah. it's economic, political, and personal autonomy. The ability to, to rule and run your own life. But there's something cultural about like what a real man is, though, right? I mean, isn't there? You think of Shakespeare mm-hmm. and uh, Henry V, and those who aren't with us today will hold their manhood cheap. Yeah, there's the, 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 a the, sense the, of like we sacrificed. We're a real guy because we're fighters. Absolutely, right? Absolutely. I mean, there's this, and and you and and to some degree, you, you'll you'll pick up on this, although it's very muted today. But it's, really, you, you well, think it's very with, with, It's with, not a with, machismo within well, the, uh, well, the military. Well, within, within the within officers, they they tend to be a little more circumspect. Oh, right. Well, of course, they have, they get trained in this. Right. <laughs> well, they're they're educated <laughs> in certain ways, and uh, uh, you know, well, they, it's I mean, it's very different now with the mixed gender army. I well, mean, still though, even yeah. um, uh, a number of my students are are women, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, they ascribe to many of the same. Hu- the, the same concepts that their male counterparts do, yeah. except for the manhood piece. Strength, St- strength, independence, virtue, independence, uh, serving something greater than oneself. Well, it's interesting because you can be both independent, but independent, but you're also part of a collective. Absolutely. you're part of a group. Yeah, in, the, in, in yeah. a sense, what they're what they're doing is they're they're gaining in they're gaining, and I don't know if that's the right word, but uh, a sense of individual worth through serving something greater than themselves and being part of a community yeah, and, and the community of arms, the profession of arms. It's so interesting. All, you see these psych- psychological studies about measuring people's happiness and there's always this notion of feeling like you are part of something. Absolutely. Is, is, human beings seem to need that mm-hmm. and the, the military has you know, provides a very nice sort of focus in that regard. Well, it's I, one of the... One of the uh, Concepts or part of the ethos that courses through this period, and I certainly see it with my students today, is that others come before yourself. And so there's great satisfaction and great value that soldiers derive from that. Mm. Well, this conversation has all been very sort of high ideals, a bit of airy-fairy, What's the reality here? What are we talking about? Soldiers in this period, um, and there has to be some mercenary aspect to it. Soldiering sucks yeah. at times. It's dirty. It can be miserable. Uh, you run the risk of losing your life. Scurvy. Being crippled. Scurvy. Let's not forget cholera mm. or malaria sweet, if you're in the South. Sweet cholera. Yeah. There you go. I mean, there's all sorts of fun to be had. <laughs> <laughs> Depending on how you define fun, yes. But yeah, um, yeah. There, there, there's certainly some some mercenary attitudes, I suppose, um, and in in the sense of that, hey, I'm 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 here, I'm serving. I I want this paycheck, I want this bounty, but as I see it seems to defy sense that one would be willing to risk one's life, one's health, one's future, solely for, frankly, a rather lousy paycheck. Mm. 
And so there's got to be something beyond that. And so they're looking really towards their futures. And to me, it, it speaks to a greater idea, a greater motivation mm. behind their service then and now. In the 18th century British Army, you get the sense that there's uh, services long-term. These regiments have traditions. Uh, they have long-serving members of them that are, are kind of attached to the regiment, mm -hmm. proud of it. And are really, they're dead-enders. I mean, they, they're serving. They're going to be soldiers. In the American Army, of course, with the, all <coughs> the antagonism to a standing army in general in a republic, I mean, what, what do we see with, uh, with American soldiers? Are they, are they in it for a short period of time during a, during a, a phase in their life cycle? Mm -hmm. Or do you get these sort of career regimental types in the American Army? Yeah, uh, yeah again, a, a great question because it's a big question. It's complex and it, thus it's fun. For the British Army, the, you know, the regimental system that we see today is really a construct of the late 19th century. Mm. In the 18th century, it was very, very common to draft soldiers who had enlisted in one regiment and then mm. send them against their will, against their knowledge mm. uh, previously, into another regiment because it needed soldiers. Mm. It was not at all uncommon for officers to sell their commissions in one regiment, sell their commission in one regiment, in order to get a commission at a better rank or at a more prestigious regiment. So the the regimental ties, those communal ties that we see in the late nineteenth century, and even today in the British Army, uh, in fact, you would see this even to uh, an extent within the Canadian Army, the New Zealand and Australian Army. Uh, many of the armies that are part of the Dominion or the Commonwealth, rather, uh, they didn't exist in the 18th century. Mm. For Americans, um, throughout this period, it was really a, a case of a short-term enlistment. You mm. found very few enlisted men signing on and making a career out of it. Right. This is something, it was a stage in life. Yeah. They were going to serve mm. one, maybe two enlistments, and then get on with their lives. Mm. Mm -hmm. Officers. Get some land, get a farm. Sure, sure. You know, Mary. hey, hey, look, look what I've done. I've got a pretty uniform. Let me come and get the pretty gals. Uh, I've got my money. I can now start on my my, my own independent way in, in life, whatever right. the case may be. Right. You know, for officers, and this is particular, particularly uh, so after the institution of military academy at West Point, mm. after that we start to see regular officers making a career of it. But even in that case, many of them served only a few years and then left and went on to civilian life. You know, quite frankly, uh, the Army Officer Corps was very much a dead-end proposition because there were not enough opportunities to advance in rank. There really wasn't a proper retirement system. Hmm. So the, the a joke that some of my colleagues have often said Every time a general dies, some private makes corporal. Mm. So you've got to wait for somebody to die or leave the service in order to make an opening. Mm. Many West Point graduates actually get appointed to their regiments as brevet second lieutenants. Mm. So they're acting second lieutenants because they're waiting for somebody, somebody just to go away. Mm. You know, die, retire, resign. 
I don't care. Just go away so that I can start my job is what many of them are thinking. Yeah. Uh, extraordinary challenge. What are some of the unique periods in that stretch from 75 to, to 65? Sixty-one. Oh gosh, you know. I mean, the, obviously, the revolution is a unique. Yeah. But I mean, moments that kind of strike you where you felt like, oh, I'm getting a lot out of this. Yeah, the, the, you know, the, na naturally, the revolution. Hey, look, here's here's a, a small group of soldiers who are winning independence. They're they're fighting against a superpower. That that one stands out. One I think that, uh, in some degree, is both is personal and professional, is the Mexican War. Yeah. I mean, you see a small army, a very small professional army, uh, bolstered by volunteers, defeat the Mexican army regularly uh, against the, the the numerical odds. Yeah, and it's uh, and, and but also you is see it technology the, is it training? Uh, it's training. I mean, yeah. technologically, both armies were about the same. Good. It's very much training. It's very much uh, the education of the officers. It's also the nature of the armies. The, the Mexican army, like many Latin American armies, was highly politicized. Mm. It, by becoming an officer, one was also entering a potential path for political and social advancement. For the, within the U.S. Army, it, you see early on established by Washington's example this deference to civilian authority. Interesting. And officers, I mean, sure, there are a few chuckleheads, but they really don't matter. By and large, the American officer corps was very much wedded to the concept established uh, by Washington's example, with civilian control, with deference to civilian authorities. They might quarrel with it, they might disagree with it, but military oh. service was a profession in and of itself. I love it. Help me understand how it relates to the to the, the kind of tactical success or even the, I guess the strategic tactical operational success of the uh, you know of the Mexican-American War where you have this guy Zachary Taylor who right I mean famously Wellington says oh he's lost he cuts off his supply lines and they do these extraordinary things and beat these armies over and over again help me understand uh, what sounds like sort of a cultural trope mm -hmm. of officership um, to the actual results on the ground I mean, sure how, how, Walk me through it. Sure, and and, and pretend and, I'm an ignorant person. <laughs> aren't we? Aren't we all? And, you know, and that's the glory of ignorance: <laughs> recognizing it. It means yeah, that we get I, to read I, I more books. It. I recognize it. I recognize it. We so, get to read more uh, and learn. So, but more. walk us through it. I think there's but, something there. Yeah. Sure, and and um and and it's, and it's actually Scott that that uh, that Wellington was speaking about. Uh, oh right, right, uh, Winfield Scott. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. old fuss and feathers. Old fuss and feathers. That's right. Yeah, but um, but but Taylor, who's um, who was Taylor's nickname? He had a oh yeah, uh, old rough and ready. Rough and ready, fuss and fuss and feathers. Okay. Yep, anyway. yep. It's, right. it's, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. Scott is lost. That's, that's yes, right. yes, that's the famous. But it, you, you actually see the uh, the because of the the education, and and the uh, the very focused professional development uh, that sort of coursed through the American officer corps, and I'm talking about the professional officers, mm. that they were very much interested in their development as officers. The Mexican army, on the other hand, exhibited many of the worst aspects of the Spanish colonial system, the uh, fuero militar, the, uh, this privilege afforded to 
mm. military officers, mm, mm. a trial by military courts instead of civil courts, right. and a host of other privileges. Yeah. So the the old mantra of Washington's when he says it takes more than the title to make the officer, you have to learn your duty. Absolutely. Wasn't one that was abided by in the Mexican army. It, it's it, two different creatures, right. two different cultures, uh, incredibly different animals. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and so, so the, the Americans... distance from the soldiery, much I mean, there's a literacy issue. Uh, the, well, for, for, the, for, for both armies, you've got issues of literacy. However, mm. within the U.S. Army, uh, particularly among northern recruits, because you've right. got higher literacy rates within New England right. and right. the northern states, um, you certainly had higher degrees of literacy, the ability to read, um, and certainly their journals and letters were great helps in my own work. Mm. For the Mexican army, um, you really have a, a peasantry, mm -hmm. and there's, and we don't really have the time to talk about it. I, uh, but within Mexico, there's this great um, problem, this great issue that runs even into the late nineteenth century of Mexicanness. Mm -hmm. Who actually is or was? Mexican. Mm, mm. Uh, those with more European blood, those with less, what constitutes it, who can properly be a citizen. Mm. Whereas in the U.S., if you're white and male, you can be an American citizen. Mm. Yes, if you're Catholic, most of the Protestants can't stand you. That said, there's an understanding, at least on, on, a, on a, uh, a level of, of, um, of one sex, male, but also one's race or ethnicity is so long as you are white you can yeah. be an American and what does the American army look like that goes into Mexico I mean it's, is it Protestant white army I mean it's what? it's largely officered by white Anglo-Saxon Protestants right. um, most of the soldiers some Irish soldiers sure sure I mean you, yeah. you've got you've got a large seems to be a, large a large trend. number yeah <laughs> large large number of Irish Catholic but also German Catholic soldiers oh. um You've got primarily, though, uh, native-born Americans. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I don't have the numbers at hand, so forgive me. Well, but that is a fascinating war. The one of the forgotten wars in American history, for sure, and uh, and one of the most, but yet one of the most significant for the shape in the history of the country. It is. I mean, it, you, it, the U.S. You get California. You sure. Get, the, well, the Mexico U.S. The U.S. takes Texas anywhere from <laughs> uh, what one, one third? third to one half of Mexican territory in this war. Yeah. Yeah, um, it'll be finally rounded out in 1854 with the Gadsden Purchase. Yeah, which had been Spanish colonial and Mexican territory since yeah. you know, absolutely what, 16th century. I mean, it's extraordinary. Yeah, uh, really, as an achievement of at arms and sure. diplomacy and, as well. Sure, I mean, this this is this is Ameri This was rather a case of American imperialism. Uh, but you so, but you don't distinguish in your book between that the soldiers. Um, the characteristics of what it means to be an American soldier, uh, between that army and the Revolutionary Army. No, it, and it, that and that was probably the greatest the shock. Surprising to me. thing. Absolutely, and it was a pleasant surprise. The, the rhetoric's the same. I, I thought that the, I'd see this this uh, shift, yeah. as I said, about eighteen fifteen, mm. but instead the soldiers, uh, and these are soldiers from privates through generals, peacetime, wartime. Mm. Regulars, volunteers, militiamen, they told me otherwise. Mm. And so I've got to be true to their stories. Mm. And what they said resonated 
course through this entire 80 plus year period. So your book ends in 1861, I assume, because you don't want to deal with the difference between the Confederacy and the Union, or? Both U.S. soldiers and Confederate soldiers subscribed to many of the same ideals, right. many of the same concepts. Yeah. They, they shared it. But I thought that it was um, probably best to end it about 1861. Otherwise, it would have been a never-ending project, and mm. I wanted to get on with my work and get a job. What's the state of military history right now? It's pretty healthy. Mm. Uh, what we're, we're starting, uh, military history is... What are the trends we're seeing at the conferences and the journals? Oh, bigger, bigger emphasis um, on cultural history mm. and understanding of it in its broader concepts, uh, how soldiers understood themselves, the world around them, and so on. Uh, environmental history. Mm. I mean, we're, we're looking at how army, and not just in the sense that, hey, here's how we negotiate with the environment. Here's how we bridge a river. Yeah. Uh, no, a, it's, it's how they're when, looking at it and understanding whenever it. Whenever I totality. think of professional armies, I think of being able to build bridges quickly. That's part of it. Yeah. That's part of it. But uh, looking at, at um, where, where do we set up a camp? Yeah. It, it, what about what about the miasma? Well, there's a great present? Washington story there, isn't there? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, look at those New Englanders didn't know what the hell they were doing. Sure. I mean, we, you you, know, you read yeah. you look at you look at Washington when he sees these for these uh, mm -hmm. New Englanders no that he first takes command yeah. of. Yeah, the vaults. He handed out T-shirts that said, you know, what is a latrine? Basically. <laughs> um, uh, okay. So interesting trends in the field. Uh, it seems to be coming back a little bit. Well, it, it's always been here. Yeah. It's rather that the broader community is accepting military history once again. There had been a fall off in the 1960s during the Vietnam War, mm. and military history is slowly making its way back into the mainstream. Mm. Uh, historians are accepting what military history has to say about the larger course and patterns and trends within history, U.S. and much more broadly. Yeah, I mean, we have something to say that's important and that matters and that contributes. It's not about bullets, beans, drums, trumpets, and the number of rivets on a tank. For crying out loud, it's about history, the totality of human beings' existence, which isn't always peaceful. Well, I can't compete with that for a final statement. That's fantastic. Uh, Rick, I really appreciate you spending your time with me uh, in a very busy schedule you have while you're swinging through Mount Vernon. And uh, I, I don't know, swinging in Mount Vernon, that might sound the wrong impression. <laughs> uh, so uh, I very much appreciate you being here with us, and uh, I, I look forward to seeing you again. Look forward to it, Doug. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this week's discussion. The Washington Library looks forward to continuing these conversations about our early American history. Please visit mountvernon.org forward slash library to learn more about the library's resources and programs. And remember, Mount Vernon is open 365 days a year and looks forward to welcoming you. Thank you and we'll see you next week.